and welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads to connect with God and find direction. Pour yourself a drink, grab a seat, and join us on the back porch for a friendly conversation about Christian prayer, spirituality, and faithful theology. My name's Matt. And I'm Brandon, and we're really glad you're here. The Signpost Inn podcast is brought to you by the Signpost Inn ministry, where we offer spiritual direction, retreats and sabbatical residencies, and lots of resources and training. You can find out more about what we do and support us by visiting signpostin.org. Welcome, everybody, to the back porch. Peter, Brandon, it's great to see you again. Good to see you too, Matt and Brandon. Yeah, good to see you guys. So, guys, it has now been over a year of Signpost In podcasting. Can you believe it? It's pretty wild. I remember listening to the first few episodes before God had called my wife and I to join the ministry. And that feels like eons ago. So feels like much more than a year since you, Brandon, and Matt started up the podcast. So it, it's really cool to be at this point looking back, having been on a few podcasts myself. It's it's a delight. It's really cool. Yeah, I've enjoyed it and grown and learned a lot about doing this. But I'll tell you what, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversations that I had, Matt, when we started this thing, the goal was we're not experts. We're just going to follow our interest and learn what we want to learn. And that has been super fun. Yeah. I hope I hope people have learned something, but in some sense, I don't care because I have. So it's been awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. And I've, I've gotten such great feedback from friends and people I go to church with, with and sometimes it's one of those things where you forget the things that you've talked about it. And then somebody stops you at church and says, oh, I was so blessed by, you know, that episode of Signpost In. And I'm like, well, refresh my memory. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, so we record these well in, well in advance. But I do I just share with you guys, I was looking at the podcast stats last night. And as of today, we have over 3,000 downloads. Wow. So. I feel like for just over a year, that's actually pretty darn good. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, and maybe what would be great as we're rounding out the end of 2022 and stepping into the next year is to pause to reflect, look back and talk about some of the things that were our favorites, some of the things that we've learned, some of the things we were challenged by. You know, this most recent set of podcasts that were released, Brandon, you were actually talking to actual subject matter experts and and yeah. bringing them into the conversation. What was that like for you? Honestly, kind of a dream for me. I had, when I started out on the idea of doing that, I did not think that I was going to be able to speak to some of those people because who am I and they don't know me. <laughs> and yet just really great interviews with people that I have admired and looked up to and they all turned out to be really, really insightful. I'm going to go ahead and just jump right in to some of the things that I learned from them, and maybe we can throw that around, because I've been thinking about those interviews since I've done them and learning things from them that have impacted me. First guy I interviewed was Dr. John Kleinig, who is relatively well-known within the kind of my church world, the Lutheran world, and he's written several books on these topics. And the fascinating thing about that particular interview was I could have asked one question and let him talk for an hour. <laughs> and he, you know, there's a sense in which he just kept he just kept bringing good stuff out and he clearly knew a lot about the topic. What was most fascinating to me in that particular interview was 
the Mary and Martha story, which is yeah. where he started, is so classic within the world of contemplation and prayer. That is one of the source texts that everyone has gone to, which is, of course, why he went there. But the thing he pointed out about that text that really fascinated or c- captured my attention was that Martha, who was busy, could have been contemplating, could have been praying, could have been paying attention to Jesus through her work. Mm-hmm. And that was really fascinating to me because that text has so often been interpreted as being like the archetypal text of two different kinds of lives. You have the life that is paying attention to Jesus and the the contemplative life, which is slow and quiet and you don't do work. You stop and sit at the feet of Jesus. And then there's the active life, which is going about and serving other people and doing all the work that has to be done in the world. And those people don't have time to sit by with Jesus. And Kleinig even mentioned this, that in the medieval world, that became a two-tiered kind of life, that some of the medieval monastics thought that the active life, which is what all of us do because we have day jobs, you know, yeah. all of was was the less good life. That right. the ideal life was to be cloistered away, sitting in the monastery, not doing work because that distracted you from Jesus. But what Kleinig points out is that in the story, what Jesus calls Martha Martha's attention to is not that she was doing work, but that she was distracted by Mary. Like that's so key. Martha was distracted not by the work but by her like envy, her anger, basically her pride, Mary's not helping me. And Jesus is like, you could be listening. You could be paying attention. You could be quote, serving me and hanging on every word, even because the work you're doing could be for me. And that just collapses that distinction, which man, for me, that was so exciting. It's like, okay, my daily life of work and I've kind of been, I'd been practicing this. So it really brought this home. Like I didn't even know that's what I was doing. My daily life of work can be with Jesus. It doesn't have to be stop and do nothing. Now, there's more to say about that because the Father Theodore, our resident monk, actually says something that also struck me on the other side. But anyway, for now, that was one of the big things I took away from that interview. Well, and I agree with you. And I think one of the interesting things is that I think there's still a hint of, you know, you said it was a medieval idea. But I think there's still a hint of that even in most of our churches today where we think of, well, there, there's the full-time minister who devotes his work to the Lord, and then there's us everyday Joes. And there's almost like a kind of a, a class system with even within the church where we sort of think that the average man just can't attain to that. And I, I like that we're kind of challenging that. And Dr. Kleinig was really saying it. It doesn't have to be that way. We can we can still contemplate and enjoy the presence of God no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Peter, since you have been recently ordained, have you run into that where it's sort of some people automatically now assume that you're the elite? Hmm. Well, you know, this theme is relatable. I'm not sure I've had long enough to experience it from this side of the the equation, so to speak, but just kind of, yeah, the theme that connecting with God requires kind of stepping away and it can't be done in your everyday regular life somehow. And that, that makes me feel that, you know, the daily work and stuff can somehow be like dirty. You know, it's like, oh, I'm so glad to get away from that now and be with God. And I've personally can approach my work 
that way too of just like, oh, connecting with God means sitting quietly and reading my Bible. That's that's the you know most pure form of it. And so I have to somehow get to that state if I want to, you know, check the box on the day and said, spend time with God. So a whole bunch of unhealthy assumptions about checking boxes and stuff there. But I need that reminder that, you know what, Jesus is present with me as I do my work and and I can intend to to be with him in doing that work or, or to accept that he's with me and that, that that is not wasted time or time gone by under the bridge. It's he's right there, present. There are ways in which our culture teaches us the opposite of that. And and I, I find it a helpful reminder to remember that, yeah, you don't have to be doing, quote, holy work in order for, for God to be present with you. He's he's always right there. And and our, our daily work of our daily work, we can do in the presence of God and realize that. And that's really comforting to me in many ways. Yeah, I think the it's the idea of distraction. And that that idea of distraction came up throughout all the interviews. What I'm resonating with what you're saying, Peter, is that I easily slip into the idea that distraction is like anything that keeps me from sitting down and spending an hour reading my Bible and doing prayer. Any, you know, distraction is stuff that takes me away from the better work of sitting and quietly doing my quiet time or something. And that is partially true. Like there, one of the things I learned from Father Theodore was exactly that idea that if you want to spend time with God, you do actually have to give up other things. Mm-hmm. But he put that in the context of like, if you want to spend time with anybody, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't this works-based God demands that I give up time for him. He was just saying, if you want to spend time with your wife, if you want to spend time with your friend, you have to give up other things. But then there's this other element, which I throughout some of the other interviews that came to me about distraction, the more subtle and more sinister distraction is I think what Martha was dealing with, which is like the distraction, the distraction from reality that my self-centeredness is always giving me. It's not, so this is a good time to recommend the book, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. He learned to be contemplative through his daily work washing dishes, managing the books of the monastery, etc. And his point was that the distraction is more the selfishness. <laughs> like the distraction was, God can't love me here. Mm. God can't be with me in this. Or I have to do this. I'm tired of this. I'm angry. And something bigger is happening with the kind of contemplative life that says what you said, Peter. God is always present. Everything I do even if it's digging a ditch or cutting down trees on Saturday afternoon in my backyard, that can be done with Jesus. That can be done with me intending to be with Jesus. And one other thing on that point, point, and then I'll shut up and let you guys talk, but that word intending, I really think it's better to use for me the word consent, like hmm. consenting to Jesus's presence, because pet peeve we hear this idea of being intentional and we make it into this massive mental effort. I've got to be intentional about being with Jesus while I'm cutting my grass. No, you just got to consent to God's presence there. And it doesn't look, there's no like huge amount of mental effort. You don't need to be reciting Bible verses. It's just this like internal move that says I'm loved and God's with me. 
that was all that Jesus was asking Martha to do, I think. Yeah. Well, and bouncing off of that is that's something that Kyle said that really struck me is he said something to the effect of nobody has to teach you to be contemplative. Human beings are contemplative creatures. You're going to contemplate on something no matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's you're going to choose something for your mind to dwell on. Right. And th- just like what you said is we can actually choose to just accept the presence of God and contemplate on that rather than all the fears that we're dealing with or struggles or, or all the ways that we're besieged in our mind by everything that happens to be what we're dealing with at the time. Yeah. And Kyle used, so Kyle Strobel, he used the, he expanded that idea of contemplation from outside of our mind. And he used the example of his son loving Legos. You know, contemplation is more than, okay, it's, he didn't say it this way, but this is what I learned from him. It's kind of simultaneously more than what I put my mind on and less. Meaning his son contemplates Legos. That doesn't mean that he's intentionally choosing to think about Legos all the time. It just means that sort of his, the to use the language that Kyle Strobel was using, is like his affection, his other parts, his heart mm-hmm. is set on them. He loves them. He's oriented toward them. So he may have to go do, you know, he may, I'm using Kyle Strobel's son, let's use my own children instead of somebody else's children. But my children love things. They may have to do the dishes sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they may not be consciously thinking about the things they love. But there's still a quite kind of orientation of their being towards those things. One of my daughters loves, both of my daughters, but one of them especially loves to sing. And when she has to do the dishes, she'll often start singing. Not because she's consciously choosing, I'm going to set my mind on singing. She just does. All of you, the people you interviewed brought something unique in the way that they defined contemplation. And Dr. Kleinig talked about it being something that it's looking at something to see what is not obvious to sight. So it's like a deep mm. looking. And he even said, and I didn't write this down, but he said that it, it's, it's something out of the Latin that says to look at something you know, attentively and intently to look at something. Yeah, I'm, I had forgotten that Kleinig had talked about looking intently to see something that wasn't there because that actually really helped me in my scripture reading. It's like, how do I read How do I read the text? And he's like, well, look for the thing that captures your attention. Look for the thing that's strange. And basically that might actually be the Holy Spirit, you know? And that was really cool. It's like, oh yeah, so there's... There's things that pop out to you in as you read scripture that you're like, that's odd. And he's like, allow that to capture your attention. Dr. Strobel, he actually brought out what the Latin etymology of contemplation actually is, which is contemplum. And he quoted somebody, I can't remember who it was, but that it's to be with God in the temple. Hmm. And that comes from Psalm 27, which is actually weirdly was my Psalm this morning. And I'm going to read part of it to you. It says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It's what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. It goes on, which is fascinating for he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. You know, for me, that's like mind blowing of, oh, okay, I'm starting to understand whatever else systematically or particularly whatever practices you want to talk about in the 
in the realm of contemplation, it's the older Christian word for having a relationship with Jesus. I grew up being told that Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I went through a period of life going, this is stupid. I hate that because I don't know what that means. Hmm. I mean, how do you have a relationship with a character in a book? (laughs) And what I'm discovering in the tradition is that Christians have been talking about this since forever. Like, okay, this is what it actually means. And whatever else you say contemplation is, it's kind of like, this is this is what we mean by being with God, dwelling with the Lord. And we can wax eloquent and talk about how cool that is for a while, but what I'm excited by is that this is starting to make it super practical. Like there are becoming very practical statements to me that I'm saying, I get it now. Like I understand what that means on a regular regular Joe level. Like what does that mean for me today? Mm-hmm. What do I do or not do in some cases to be with Jesus and not just say I am and not just desire it? Yeah, well, and that's something else that I, I picked up from your interview with Dr. Strobel is he said one of the great idolatries about the church and and its view of contemplation is to try to create an experience. And he was saying that that's not, that's not your job. You, you are not there to drum up something. It's, it's not like, I don't know, there's so many ways to look at it, but it's like, sometimes we judge ourselves and our, our spiritual worth and our spiritual effectiveness of, as to how good we've manage to create spiritual feelings. And we've talked about this before on other podcasts, but this just making the point of kind of taking the burden of of your time with God off your shoulders, right? And just accepting whatever you get from him that particular day in that moment, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think? What are you guys thinking about that? So, so I'll be honest with the things going through my mind right now are, and Matt, you said that a few minutes ago, you know, each of the people that Brandon interviewed on contemplation brought a different perspective. And so my current experience just in this conversation right now, but even perhaps in listening to some of our podcasts is I have such a tendency to try and systematize everything. So as I'm sitting here, I'm trying to reconcile everything to one another and to form this one cohesive picture of how everything fits together. And I don't know, I think that's just probably a natural thing. Brains do, we like to order things, but I've been a little bit distracted, I must confess, as I'm trying to, you know, like filter everything. You know, it's like I've got these filing cabinets in my brain that I'm trying to file all these different pieces. And we're just talking about the practical nature of contemplation. And I'm just wondering maybe if any other listeners have this experience too of listening to different interviews or different perspectives and gaining valuable insights, but not having like a ability to see it as a cohesive whole. Hmm. And like, so I I would want to toss that to you, Matt or Brandon and and ask, what what do we do with that? But I'm also just self-reflecting thinking, maybe there's an invitation for me here from God just to accept that and consent to that. And, but I don't know, I I guess that's a question there for you, Brandon. What, What do we do with that? Absolutely. That is exactly the right question. And the reason that's exactly the right question is that I think that actually cuts to the very heart of what I desire and what Signpost In as a whole is trying to do differently in this world. 
One of the issues that we currently face, and I'm pulling this from a couple other thinkers, is the tyranny of the analytical. It, it appears to me that we live in a time when the logical systematizing part of our brains or our souls or whatever is the one in charge. That part of us is the part in charge saying whatever else is true, whatever, I can't know it unless I can analyze it, order it, and articulate it in a systematic fashion. Another way of saying that is propositional knowledge or knowledge about facts is by and large within our culture, the only kind of knowledge that counts. Everything else, that's the only true knowledge there is in our culture. That is the water we swim in. We are inundated with factual propositional knowledge every day. And one of our deepest problems is we have lost touch with the other kinds of knowledge. What might be called wisdom, relational knowledge, encounter, knowledge through encountering, Mm-hmm. And even participatory, knowledge through taking part of and doing something. Those are actually the, that's actually wisdom. That's what wisdom is, is the ability to know which facts to pay attention to and why. <laughs> a lot of that stuff is coming from a podcast I just recently listened to by, from a guy named John Verveke and Ian McGilchrist. They were in dialogue together. And that's a lot of that language comes from them. So to bring that down to the point really quickly that you said, Peter, to answer your question, Peter, the struggle I had when I was like, I don't know what a relationship with Jesus means was that I couldn't put it into words and I couldn't articulate it into a system and I couldn't reduce it to the five bullet points that I needed in order to do it right. And what I am learning is, of course not. Whatever else contemplation is, whatever else a relationship with Jesus is, it's first and foremost relational, experiential, participatory. Like, that's how I know Jesus. Which is to say, my knowledge of my wife is not first and foremost factual, propositional, state true, true things about her. My knowledge of my wife is actually relational, participatory, mm-hmm. experiential. And those, like all of that knowledge is actually what allows me to know what is true about my wife propositionally. So yeah, like my, what I want to say to you is, no, I can't, your, your feeling of you can't come away with the system that gives you the five points that you need to take out of this. What I'd like to say is maybe to our listeners as well, notice that you have that desire. I have it too. And as soon as you notice it as being a constant desire everywhere that might open the door for the option of you noticing that there's other ways of knowing things that will resolve that tension, but not in the way that we thought we needed it resolved. Does that make sense? I think so. That That's, that's helpful for me to be reminded of that. It rings true with my experience. So in that way, I it's helpful to be refreshed for me. I'm conscious that I kind of answered your question, Matt, by saying... I'm distracted right now. Let me talk about that. So I don't know if if we wanted to get back on track and and if you wanted to rephrase your question and move on from there. I, I apologize if I've derailed us. You know, not at back all. Back porch, man. Yeah, not well. And and 
you know, to follow up with something Dr. Kleinig said, and I mean, he told a, a really great story of him in his, when he was a student and asking a professor, like, I feel so distracted. And, the, uh, and he was saying like, I feel like the devil's distracting me. Right. And the, and the professor says, well, who said that? What if it's the Holy Spirit, right? What if your distraction is actually the Holy Spirit leading you off of a path that you're, you think you're supposed to be on? Like, oh, this is the, and yet actually leading you into hidden riches that are off the, the beaten path, right? And so it's, that's one of the things I loved about his interview is the permission to chase rabbit trails, you know, and let, Again, it's kind of a consent to say, okay, Holy Spirit, you are the one who is in the lead here, and I'm following you. And maybe it leads, yeah, maybe it is a distraction, but then again, you don't know. You don't know until you follow that out. To me, that picture is very much like the conversations I have. Just to bring this back to exactly the point, right, that what all the Christians keep pointing out is that God is real. He's a real person that it's it's certainly a different kind of dialogue than I have with a flesh and blood person sitting right in front of me like you guys, but not as much as you might think. And one of the big complaints that people have is, well, I want to talk to God. I want to, you know, I want him to come and talk to me just like you're talking to me. And I'm increasingly starting to think, well, maybe that's actually possible. <laughs> but anyway, but the point is that Matt, just like your the image that came into my head as you said that was exactly the kind of conversation I have with my wife every day. Mm-hmm. We start chatting, and a thought comes into my head, and I bring it up, or she th- thinks of something, and it's we not we don't have this extremely logical thirty minute session where we go through this passage and learn what we're supposed. To. She's like, "Hey, I was thinking about this," and I was like, "Oh, that makes me think about this," and she goes, "Oh, did you remember this?" And so the quote unquote distractions or rabbit trails are actually the substance of the relationship in a lot of ways, or at least the substance of the conversation. And I think of that now much more freely when I'm sitting in church on Sunday and the the word of God is being read from the front and my mind goes, I wonder if Jesus got, you know, if his feet smelled while he was doing, like (laughs) my brain goes crazy. And I'm like, (laughs) it's like, oh, hold on a second. That's actually an okay thought to be distracted with. Because it might actually be something that's catching my attention and to be open to the possibility that God is delighting in me in a way. <laughs> yeah. He's a much more delightful person to talk to than the stodgy old man who only wants you to learn propositional facts about him that we often think he is. What we're talking about right now actually reminds me of a story that I got. It, it was a phenomenal experience and I'm th- so thankful to God that I got to be here for this. But there was a woman that I met earlier this year who was actually, no, I'm sorry. It was earlier last year. And she was a non-believer who was participating in a church program that was specifically designed for skeptics and non-believers to come and wrestle with the truth of the gospel. Right. And this was, we were connected by a, by a mutual friend and was like, you should get to know this lady. It's very interesting. And we're sitting in a, you know, a restaurant talking And she's, I mean, she's lived her whole life as an atheist and yet God began moving in her life in a way that she was sensitive to. And she's telling me the story of how she's, you know, reading the Bible and reading the materials that she's getting from these friends of hers that are in this ministry. And she says, 
And, you know, in her mind, she's just thinking thoughts, but she's actually praying and she's like, okay, God, I'm trying, I'm trying to find you. I'm, I'm doing my best if you're really there. And she says, and I felt like he said, you know, you've got that wrong. I'm the one trying to find you. And she's, and she's like, well, I don't know why you would want to do that. I'm, I'm an atheist and I don't believe in you. Why would you try to find me? And his, and she says, I felt like he said, I, I, it's because I love you. And I'm sitting across the table from her with wide eyes and being like, I think you actually heard from God. And in her mind, it's all like cerebral. And she's like, these are just thoughts in my head. But I'm like, I think you're actually talking to God. And he's saying these things to you. <laughs> and it's kind of one of those things is like, you're really hearing from God right now. And you don't know it. Or you're you're not you're not giving it, you're not accepting it as, as really what's happening. I don't know if that necessarily relates to what we're saying here. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I'm not exactly sure how that relates other than just the fact of sometimes God really is talking to us and we don't even recognize it. I, yeah, I feel like that's exactly right. That, that relates really well. Here's what that makes me think of, which is so fascinating to me. One of the big, this never came up in the interviews directly. But throughout all the top people I've talked to this this last couple of months that I really admire, not just the interviews with the, these people on contemplation, but with with my aunt-in-law, Rosemary Jackson, Rick Mars, way back at the beginning of the year, who wrote a book about Christian approach to counseling and therapy. All of these guys and women who have way more knowledge and experience than I have, they are not afraid of God actually acting in this present world. Like the idea that God might actually speak to you, that you might have an experience of God, that you can talk to God and think of him like a real person. None of them are afraid of it. And they're also, none of them kind of weirdly seeking it. And to me, that's a really big insight because I find people when I'll say, when I start saying, well, God's a real person, you can really talk to him. It's a very immature position to be like, wait, 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 that's dangerous. How do you know you can't it's it, you can't let God talk to you personally? Hmm. It's equally immature it seems to me to say but I need him to. I I'm, I'm going to seek that experience. I'm going to go for that what I I'm not doing very well if I'm not getting God talking to me directly. Both of them kind of seem to me to come from places of well the first comes from a place of fear. I can't trust that God will actually care for me. And they look at the ways that's been abused and they're like, oh, it's all bad. The second one, which is like, I really desperately want these, these mystical experiences of God also comes from a place of fear. I'm not good enough unless I get those. God's not real unless I get those. The people who I admire who seem to be wise and mature are neither afraid of the actual existence of a personal God nor seeking magical experience. And the ministry of signpost in being easily summed up into connect with God and find direction. Whenever we put that out there as yes, connection with God is possible. And this this idea of ministering to weary travelers and sojourners who are seeking to find direction and find that connection with God, is that something that, whenever you put it out there, sounds 
like, is it almost too good to be true? And people are like, I don't know if that's even real or I can, if that's attainable for somebody like me kind of a thing. So I'm thinking just of like the analogy of human relationships and, and how we correspond to how we think of God. But yeah, if you don't know somebody very well and somebody just, you hear, oh, I want to talk to you. It's kind of like, why? Or I don't know. There's like a defensiveness of like, that's weird. Like, I don't know you, you know, before you establish a relationship with somebody that at first engagement, especially if the way it's framed is, Hey, I got to talk to you or I want to talk to you, or I've got something to say to you. It's like, that's a little, I don't know. I get defensive. And I think there's that sense we can treat God that way of like, what do you, what do you mean you want to talk to me? I, I'm, I'm a little unsure here. I feel afraid. I don't, you know, I'm not going to stick around in this space. And then on the other side, in human relationships, it's normally not the most healthy thing to just walk up and say, I want to have the deepest friendship with you. Like, tell me, tell me all of your wounds and your fears and your, your passions. Like, <laughs> give it to me now. Like, nobody, if you just walk up to somebody and say, I want to get to know you, tell me everything. Nobody's going to lay it all bare there. I don't think that would be healthy, right? <laughs> there's a there's a natural way of of developing a relationship in those, I don't know, you you get to know somebody. And, and as you get to know them and do life with them, experience and participate in things with them, that becomes a more natural way of relating to them. And sometimes I think I, I can relate personally. And I think others, I've, I've seen that too, of those two pr- perspectives of like either being a little defensive towards God's speaking to me or like wanting just everything like I and just like kind of that demanding sense of like I want everything right now so I don't know I guess that to me that is a helpful sort of analogy of some of those ways that we can kind of either be afraid of God or or demand things of God that in a human term they don't that doesn't feel natural you know so how, how do we sort of consent to the the relational aspect of getting to know God and his getting to know us, or that's not the way to say it, but him him revealing himself to us and walking with us each day. It's not a, a jump from one to a hundred. God getting to know us. I actually think that might be the right way to say it because that highlights the difficulty that people have with this, which I have with this, which is that my propositional theological system says, God knows everything. He doesn't need to get to know me. But my experience of God tells me something different that God condescends, that he he does take time with me. Yes, he knows every propositional fact there is to know about me. Fine. But he experiences me, and I get to experience him. And I love what, like, I don't even really think it's in an analogy. You're saying there's this analogy of human relationships that we learn to know each other over time, and there's a building of trust as we experience the character and the presence of another person, I actually think that's kind of what we're saying is that's how God does it with us too. Some of our demandingness is we're like, I want you to be like this ideal human being that I have in my mind, this ideal human being. And it's like, no, God is, God is a real personal being and he takes his time with me. And when we all, we get all wrapped up in the, What's the correct theological way to say this? Which is important. There's a time and a place for that. But when we get all wrapped up in it, what we're 
actually doing more often than not is sort of creating a cult of accuracy. You've got to talk about it the way I talk about it or you're dangerous. And to be fair, there's a reason for that instinct that is good. There are people who who use the idea that you can hear from God to abuse and hurt other people. I mean, that's been done. But that if if say it the right way becomes the tyrannical dominant way that we talk, the 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 only way we relate to God, then we lose that personal reality. I don't know if that made any sense, but that's where my mind is. Yeah, I definitely get that. And in fact, I think for me, especially in my younger days, the idea of hearing from God within myself is so it, it's possible to get outside of the boundaries there, right? Because it's like, well, mm-hmm. you, God's never going to say anything to you that, and there's sort of that list of it's not going to contradict scripture. It's not going to contradict, you know, what God says through his church. And, and there's all these criteria of trying to measure what God is actually speaking to me. And it's like, well, is that really God? Or is that, is that just me? And it put for me and given the, history that I've had growing up in the church tradition that I grew up in, there sort of are these strict boundaries of like, and and it almost is so strict and narrow that you feel like it's impossible to actually hear from God or engage in intimacy with God, unless it's just literally direct out of scripture and getting the permission to experience God. And even, even as I'm saying this, I'm like, well, hold careful. You're on the edge of heresy there, Matt. Don't, don't, don't go too far. And yet at the same time, just everything that we've been saying over the last few minutes is saying, you know, God desires to have a relational intimacy with you and it's, it's available. And whenever you try to define that, it, it almost defies definition because, well, God's not a tame lion. You know, he's not, mm-hmm. He's not out to create another program for us to follow. He, it's it's dynamic. It's relational. It's unpredictable. Sometimes he does lead us into the wild places where it's off the road. I think we're hitting a paradox here. To use Chesterton's idea of paradox, a good paradox keeps us balanced, not by not by holding us up upright, but by stretching us. Like like it's. It's like we have two wires tied to us just pulling two different directions and then you stay perfectly balanced. Hmm. And the idea is it's not that I have a problem. In fact, I believe in those guardrails that you were talking about, right? Yeah. Right. Like it's a really good idea. If you think you've heard from God to go, well, if it's against scripture, it's not God. Like, yeah, amen. But it's not the guardrails or the guidelines or whatever that are the problem. It's the fear that reduces everything to that particular way of thinking. Hmm. And the hell, that's kind of what I'm, and I feel like, to be perfectly honest, I feel like this is the area of growth for me that I'm just barely starting to scratch the surface on. Like, hmm. I'm, I have a lot to learn. Maybe this is a whole new podcast episode series, but the, the systematic, propositions of truth that protect us from error are one thing pulling on me. The experiential reality of the person of God present privately with me is another thing pulling on me. 
and together they work to keep me balanced. Hmm. And so I'm so the people who fear that I'll fall off the side that you know ah there is no God can say whatever I can go off and well yeah that's a legitimate fear I need to keep in mind. Hmm. The people who are like ah your systems are you're trying to box God in, you know well yeah I mean both sides are not without a point. <laughs> But both sides in extreme, I think, are they're missing something. I'm an imagery thinker, and the image you gave of of having two things anchoring you and in, in pulling in opposite directions is actually what creates stability. I instantly thought of, you know, um, well, we drive past them all the time of these telephone poles or or power lines, and they they all have a secondary anchor, right? They will. Sometimes it'll be triangular. Sometimes it'll just be, you know, but the, the weight of that power line, which is carrying, you know, essential electricity to its users, it has a pull to it and you have to have an opposite anchor to keep it from being pulled over. It's not going to stand unless there's that tension. And I think for me, that's a perfect way. I don't know that that, that analogy has brought it to life. Exactly what we're saying of God is in that tension. And it, it does keep us balanced and it does keep us grounded. And without that, we fall over. And that's a, oh man, that analogy just works for me so well. Yeah. And it, I mean, I think that analogy also, or that I, that point is the, if I were to say what I wanted people to get out of, what we're trying to do, what the, those interviews we're doing, and a lot of what we're trying to do is to learn that balance to learn to live in that paradox that keeps us grounded, not to, to not necessarily be able to articulate it, but back to kind of that thing that popped up to, to experience it and participate in it. And that then, you know, that's, that's the stuff of growth with God. That's, that's, that's connection with God. It's like, you know, the relationship with him is complex and multidimensional and the temptation to reduce it to one or the other Nope. It's learning to live with a real person, but also with the systems and the things he's put in place because that's part of who he is. All of that is, I I feel like none of that made much sense, but there it is. I think you mentioned that living in one camp and one camp exclusively is normally based out of fear, right? And, And I think maybe the thing to focus on is accepting that, yeah, there's legitimate things on either side and living in that tension is okay. And simply accepting that kind of removes the fear factor of like, I, it's okay to be here because I'm safe here. God is here and I trust he's leading me. So it's okay. That sort of cuts off the fear that drives us to uh, embrace only one perspective or only the other. It also, I, I do want to say, it also doesn't lead to a relativism. I think the tension, people, I confess, I hate hate living in tension. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> yeah. I really don't like to be unsure of what I think about some theological or otherwise other truth. And society has exacerbated that to the millionth degree. Boy, if you get on social media, especially in the political land, and you have a moment's hesitation of onto which side you're on, <laughs> you know, golly, that's that's practically hell. But so I hate it. I don't like being, I don't know what's really true here. I don't know what I really believe here. I don't. And I think 
fear of that tension, fear of that unease, fear that someone might think that I'm crazy drives a lot of us to a kind of relativism. Ah, nobody can know anything. Everybody's got an opinion on this. There's no way to know what's true here. To which I want to kind of encourage and say, no, there is actually truth here. But going through and living in the tension is sometimes how it gets, how you find it. Hmm. And it may not come out as a propositional thing at the end, but a kind of experiential or participatory certainty to put practical feet to that. Here's the answer. Here's what I mean by that. It is central in my mind to the way that signpost interacts, interacts with the world on, especially on different denominations that we recognize that the different denominations are different and that their disagreements are important. They're not secondary or tertiary issues and that we also are okay with having the dialogue. Mm -hmm. The only way we can have a good dialogue is if we believe that what you think has some validity or at least is worth listening to and that it really matters. Otherwise, why would I talk about it? Some people I've said that to or tried to articulate that position to, they, they throw their hands up in despair. Well, how can I know which one is right? How do I know where, to, where I should be? My answer to them at this point in my life is, I've been through that too. I think that's an okay place to go through. Don't despair. Don't say there's no truth. So why am I in the, why am I in the tradition I'm in? Well, I can give you a lot of propositional facts for why I'm there that I think are helpful. I can give you a lot of reasons. I can, you know, I can give you the apologetic for why you should be the kind of Christian that I am. But that's not really why I'm the kind of Christian that I am. The real reason is because the more I participate in it and the more I experience it and the more that I live with it, the more it fits right. Hmm. And that's that participatory knowledge. That's that experiential. It's just, it fits right. It's like, nah, this is, and I can't, I can't give you the 10 reasons that'll make it fit right to you either. Cause it didn't for me for a long time. And it still doesn't in places, but I, but enough of it does that those places I'm like, yeah, it's probably cause I'm just immature. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll, I'll go along with it. And I think that's, I think that, so I, I guess the summary here, and we should probably wrap this up, but I think the summary for me would be something like, Peter, what you said, embrace the tension and the, the fear as being part of it. Like, that's okay. Hmm. And God is present. I recently heard it in this terms at a conference I went to. We were talking about the dilemma, the dilemma of discipleship. Here's the, the thing that was memorable and meaningful to me was we often think, oh, this dilemma is a disaster, but actually the dilemma is delightful and is the path forward. That tension that we experience is often interpreted as, oh, I hate this. This can't be, this can't be faithfully walking after Jesus. This is, this is not a good experience and I need to solve it and be done with it. And I think it's really helpful to reframe that as, yeah, there is tension and questions and things to explore and to engage in. And that is okay. And that's probably even the invitation of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to further our relationship with him as we explore that and trust him to lead us. And it can be a delightful experience rather than saying, what a disaster. I can't believe it. Wow. Well, thank you, Peter. I think that really sums up what this whole episode was really all about. 
and be a good place to wrap us up. So listeners, thank you for joining us out here on the back porch and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org. While you're there, sign up for our e-newsletter and we'll send you a free ebook. Also, a big thanks to all of our supporters. Signpost N is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, and we exist only because of our generous donors who make everything we do possible. Please consider supporting us with your recurring donation. Visit signpostn.org slash donate.